This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Whatever You Like by David Rawson and Birds by Charles Holdifer. Whatever You Like, written and read by David Rawson. Listening time, 10 minutes, 52 seconds. On Moses' 12th birthday, his mother took him to a traveling circus near the county line. She rarely drove. When she needed to go somewhere in town to buy groceries, to have her hair cut, to buy flowers for a funeral, to clean houses for cash, she would take the bus. She had told Moses, when you drive, you're putting your life into the hands of someone else. Their poor decisions could kill you. That is too much power for someone to have. So each time before she drove, she would lay her hands on the hood of the car and pray protection over it, anointing the hood with prayer oil she had sent away for in the mail. It was the middle of June, a wet heat Moses could taste. The air in the car burned his eyes, so he cranked down the window, pushed against the resistance of the handle. His mother said nothing. She drove slowly, 30 and a 45. He could feel her relax when she turned off onto Route 3, a long, gravel road she could take as slowly as she wanted. The tires kicked up the loose rocks, and gravel dust filled Moses' eyes, making tears form under his eyelids. Moses had never been to a circus before. He was not sure what a circus was. Bobby, who lived a few blocks from him, had told him that he had seen men and women in clothes so tied against their bodies that the fabric was like another layer of skin. The acrobats, grasping and holding tight to each other as they swung by their feet through the air. Bobby, a few years older, said he had wished the boobs had bounced more. Bobby presented himself as certain of most things, and boobs were one of his specialties. As his mother drove along Route 3, tapping her brakes every few hundred yards, Moses thought of being next to Bobby, both sitting Indian-style on Bobby's bed, eating black licorice they had bought in town. Bobby opened his window next to the bed and periodically spit black licorice juice at it. His teeth stained black, Bobby looked at Moses confidently and said, Boobs bounce. The entire circus was held under one medium-sized tent. It was half past three. Less than 20 people were in the audience, most of them couples that seemed impossibly old. Wrinkly skin, sunken eyes. Moses conjured up one of the vocabulary words he had been memorizing for an upcoming competition. Octogenarian. He looked at thinning white hair and trembling hands grasping onto canes and whispered, Octogenarian, to himself, so that he would remember. 
Moses had expected kids his age or younger here, but he was the youngest. The ringmaster came out to a fast music track filled with accordions and slide whistles that made Moses dizzy, and the ringmaster boomed his voice into his wireless microphone, but the speakers kept cutting out. The big, booming, incomprehensible voice. Then, a moment of silence. Then, the loud squawk of the speaker. Then, two clowns, one male and one female, ran into the tent, accompanied by more loud circus music. The male clown wooed in pantomime, moving his hands as if he were playing a violin, his eyes fluttering and his neck craning in the feigned rapture of his music. When the female clown stuck her nose up and turned away as if not interested, he pretended to chuck his violin into the audience and to mime inflating balloons for her. He slowly rose on his tiptoes as if the buoyancy of the balloons was pulling him up. Her back still turned, the female clown turned to look at him and then stuck her nose up at him again and took a few steps back. The rejected clown began to leave the dirt circle stage when he looked up and pointed his index finger at the sky as if he had just had an idea. He ran out of the tent and came back with a large red blanket, which he cloaked himself in before climbing the acrobat's ladder. At the top, he leapt into space. Moses watched the clown plummet to the ground, could trace the outline of the body, heard the thud of the weight of it hit the ground, but when the lady clown cautiously removed the blanket, the male clown had been replaced by a life-size clown doll, which the lady clown immediately showed attraction to. She kissed its face again and again and danced it out of the circle. There were no acrobats in this show. Moses was surprised to find himself relieved about that. He tried to avoid looking at that part of a woman. When he felt he was looking too long, he would say, Jesus, forgive me, under his breath, just loud enough for only himself to hear. And Jesus. Moses' mother asked him what he thought after every act. He smiled and nodded. She told him he could get a big popcorn and soda because he was the birthday boy. And Moses knew this, that coming to a circus he was not sure he wanted to be at, would be his birthday gift. Not because they were poor. She made decent enough money cleaning houses, paying for him to attend private school and for a tutor. His mother did not find large parties or birthday cards or cakes and candles practical. They had no lasting purpose. He told her he was not hungry or thirsty. Even though she was now offering, he did not fully trust the gesture. I've been thinking, she said, do you like the spelling bees, and the Bible trivia? Moses did not know whether or not to be truthful. He did them because his mother expected him to, and because the relationship seemed tied up in them, spending time at night preparing for them, then actually competing, then planning for the next one. When he thought of a life without the competition, he had trouble envisioning his mother still being there. He finally just asked, Why? I want you to start telling me what you like, whatever you like. That's why I wanted to bring you here, somewhere fun, just for fun's sake. Moses thought that if this were true, his mother would have asked him if he wanted to come here at all. 
The ringleader ran out and belted something loud and fast into his microphone, and then the lion tamer appeared, dressed in a black coat with long tails and a tall black hat, leading an elderly male lion by a leash. The lion's mane was a mangled grayish gold. His frame was slender, almost emaciated, and his black eyes were sunken, looking at the ground as if he were defeated. He breathed heavily. Moses could follow the movement from lungs to muzzle, the shifts and twitches the body made that the lion could not control. The tamer walked the lion around the circle a few times and disappeared at an exit. That was it. That was all. Moses' mother looked down at Moses and laughed high and sharp. She looked tired. Happy birthday, she said. Moses felt that she did not want to be here and that she was searching for signs of that same feeling in his face. He smiled and said thanks, guarding his eyes so as not to hurt her. In her attempt to give him more choice, she had again chosen for him, but this time choosing something she did not seem to enjoy. But at least she is trying, he thought. On the drive home, Moses' mother hit the brakes hard as a light turned yellow. The man behind her, irritated by her slow driving and already very close to her bumper, drove into the back of their Honda, pushing it into the intersection. Moses rocked forward, then settled. Later, Moses would wonder why his mother was so silent. No screams. No prayers. She just sat there, quiet, her foot still on the brake her hands at ten and two, gripping the leather wheel cover firmly. No one was coming, their car still in the middle of the intersection, their lights still red. Moses sighed, relieved no one was coming, that no one would hit them. The car shook again as the car behind them backed up, a long metallic scream. Must be his mother, but her mouth was still closed. That cry was instead the sound of the car behind them backing up, removing itself from theirs. The car pulled up beside them. There was a man inside, old enough to be his father. He looked into the car, surveying the scene. He watched Moses' mother for a minute and then looked over at Moses. Later, Moses would say he and the man kept eye contact for just a moment. But it was the kind of moment that stretched out that lived on long after the man in the car drove away. Moses' mother turned the ignition back on and drove through the rest of the intersection, then pulled off onto the shoulder, a grassy, shallow ditch, and turned the car off. She turned to Moses, looked him over, like the man in the other car had. He saw the look in her face that he had seen in the man's, that decision she came to that he was not hurt, or not hurt, enough. She opened her door, got out, and said, come on. Moses got out and followed his mother down the road. After they had walked until they could no longer see the car behind them, she said, I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you for sparing us. I'm so sorry. Then she turned to Moses and said, we never should have come. They would walk all the way back. They could take all day. No one was waiting. They could keep walking until their skin wrinkled and their eyes sunk. Until they were octogenarians, they would walk. 
David Rawson's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Monkey Bicycle, Spork Press, Prick of the Spindle, and others. He learned to dance by watching the music video for Billy Squire's Rock Me Tonight. Birds, written and read by Charles Holdifer. Listening time, 13 minutes, 52 seconds. Birds, by Charles Holdifer. Suddenly, at the sink, while peeling a carrot, his grandmother slumped to the floor, never to breathe again. His mother speculated that somehow she'd been granted a vision of all the vegetables she'd peeled in her life, and this glimpse had crushed her. That was a year ago. Now his grandfather lived alone in a dirty house with three shaggy dogs as his only companions. Everyone was concerned that he was doing poorly. Go see your granddad, Ted's parents urged. Get him to use the C-41. What am I supposed to tell him? He won't listen. Ted knew no one less interested in technology or, for that matter, in this century. Help him. His hearing is almost completely gone. We've got to do something. His grandfather didn't even turn around when the car rolled into the driveway. He was inspecting some staked-out tomato plants. At the clunk of the car door, however, his back stiffened, and he straightened up and slowly turned around. Scarecrow thin in his bib overalls, he came over to shake Ted's hand in a sandpapery grasp. Then he turned the hand over and exposed the soft pink, observing loudly, A look at that, Teddy. You must not be working very hard. This was the man's idea of a greeting. He couldn't know the trouble that Ted had gone to making this visit. The excuses and rescheduled appointments, the lost time in traffic. I pull my weight, Ted told him, taking back his hand. Don't worry about me. His company had landed a new software design contract from a major health provider. They were as busy as hell. What? his grandfather asked. Ted repeated himself, and his grandfather looked down at Ted's waistline and laughed. Then he turned and walked slowly toward the door. Irritated, Ted followed, and in the living room he managed to find a place to sit on the couch amid newspapers and junk mail advertising, which his grandfather had saved up in piles. There was a smell of mildew and a trickle of water entering the room from the kitchen linoleum. The refrigerator still leaked. That much hadn't changed. Ted went straight to business. How's the C-41? he asked. His grandfather didn't answer the question, though Ted was sure that he'd heard this time. Coffee, his grandfather said. The practical purpose of Ted's visit was to convince the old man to use his new hearing aid. Ted's parents had already expended a considerable amount of energy on the problem, taking his grandfather to see an audiologist in Cape Girardeau, arranging the tests and the fitting of a device. The C-41 was state-of-the-art. It featured the latest noise reduction technology for feedback cancellation. But when the great day arrived and the doctor regulated the device and sent his grandfather on his way, a whole man again, the first thing he did upon reaching home was to take it out of his ear and put it back in its case. I didn't want it in the first place, he said. 
That thing costs too much money. This was the sort of sentiment that annoyed Ted beyond words. The fact that his parents' dutiful efforts would have been more successful, and his grandfather actually pleased, if they'd found him a used hearing aid, perhaps bought after some sharp bargaining with the local undertaker, which he could take out to the garage and wipe off with an old rag before jamming into the side of his head. If it broke down half the time and he had to spend a lot of effort and worry and talk about fixing it, why, he would be almost too happy for words. You want a cookie? Ted declined. I like a cookie with mine. He reached up to a shelf and helped himself to a sugar wafer, while Ted sipped his tepid cup of instant coffee. Have you even tried the C-41? What? Ted repeated himself. You should take that thing with you when you go, his grandfather said. I don't even want it in the house. Ted watched as Ernie, one of his grandfather's big dogs with mud-caked fur, flopped on the floor at his feet. An animal of indistinguishable breed, he looked like something that had crawled out of the Pleistocene era. He got a straw up his nose, and I think it really hurt him, his grandfather said. Don't his face look sad? Ted changed the subject. What's all that medicine for? He pointed to a jumble of prescription vials on his table. Those were Helena's. They were just sitting around, and I didn't want them to go to waste. You shouldn't be taking Grandma's medicine. Don't you know better than that? Of course I do. Good Lord. He sniffed and rubbed his knees with both hands. It's for the dogs. Don't you worry about me. Give it a rest. What's your news, Teddy? You still seeing that big gal? What's her name? I suppose you mean Beverly? Yes, Beverly. When are you two going to settle down? This wasn't a welcome question from his grandfather or anyone else. Beverly and Ted were no more. The split had happened months ago, but he still avoided talking about it. He'd begged Beverly to give him another chance. He'd implored her to stay. It was a dreadful thing to beg. He'd followed her around the apartment and had eventually found himself standing outside a locked bathroom and pounding on the door, crying like a child. You can't do this, he'd sobbed. I'm not coming out till you go away. Talk to me. Go away. I need you. It's not really me you want, said the voice behind the door. How could that be? You've had your chance and it's over. So just look at yourself. Now he regretted the scene. Against his will, it replayed in his mind many times, and he didn't like it. He saw himself on the wrong side of the door. This was where Beverly thought he belonged. And how could he want that? Still, it wasn't the sort of thing he could talk about easily to another person, certainly not to his grandfather. Instead, he said, This is not a good time for me to settle down. With these new projects at work, some nights I don't even finish before eleven. That's just the way it is. His grandfather thought about this for a moment. He'd spent his life farming or driving a coal truck. He'd always considered himself lucky to have avoided the mines. Listen, Teddy, he said, maybe you should just leave now. 
Ted understood from his tone that he meant nothing disagreeable by this statement. Rather, his grandfather didn't like the idea of people driving in the dark, as a general rule. But then, to Ted's surprise, the old man rose from his chair and retrieved a leather case from the buffet drawer and took out the C-41 hearing aid, which was flesh-colored and scarcely bigger than a bean. Maybe it was a gesture of appeasement to send him down the road. "'Sure, let's do it,' Ted said. "'The instructions are right here. "'I know how to do it. "'Just give me a minute. "'Put Ernie out.' Ted obeyed and got up and opened the screen door for the dog. When Ernie went out, another big muddy dog, Santo, lumbered in. The changing of the guard. During this time, his grandfather took off his glasses in order to see better, squinching his eyes at the multilingual instructions. He put his glasses back on. With a jiggle, he eased the device into his ear, his mouth dropping open at the same time. "'There you go,' Ted encouraged. His grandfather said nothing, and presently Ted asked, "'How is it?' Still no reply. "'Don't you think both dogs could stay outside?' Ted said a short time later, as Santo sniffed and inspected him, and panted hotly against his shirt. He seemed to think that Ted was one of them. "'Quiet!' his grandfather barked. It was only a simple question. Frankly, Ted was fed up. His grandfather's eyes narrowed. He seemed to be concentrating. Ted made one last attempt. "'Well, do you hear me better?' Should I talk louder? Can't you keep your mouth shut for a minute, for Pete's sake? He pushed past Ted and pressed his way outside, the screen door slapping shut behind him. Ted felt bewildered. There'd been a peculiar tone in his grandfather's voice that he didn't recognize. Even Santo could see that something wasn't right. Slowly, Ted reached for the door and followed. His grandfather was standing under the trees, while Ernie shambled a half-circle behind, though the old man paid no attention. Dusk was thickening. Ted went over to him. At first he wasn't sure what to say, but when he drew closer, his words came instantly. His grandfather was crying. "'What is it, Grandpa? What's the matter?' Tears trickled down either side of his nose, and his eyelids, reddish, had also assumed a bruised tinge. In all his life, Ted had never seen his grandfather cry, not even at Grandmother Helena's funeral. It was disorienting. Of course he understood that his grandfather would cry like anybody else, that his life had had its share of sorrows and losses. Yet witnessing this side of him was another thing altogether. The old man seemed exposed, and Ted felt awkward. "'You can tell me,' he said. Searching, he added, "'Or should I go away? Is that what you really want?' His grandfather raised a hand to silence him, or to ask him to wait. Ted couldn't tell. So he stood off to the side and watched, feeling lost, powerless, wondering why the old man grieved, until his grandfather finally spoke again, and Ted understood that he was not grieving.' "'Birds,' he said. "'From the darkening leaves of trees "'and on the wire of a nearby telephone pole, 
and from unknown, unseen corners of the gutters and ditches came a variety of sounds. Bird song, a throaty, looping trill of a cardinal, as well as an uncoordinated medley of chirps and gurs and the squeak of swallows as they darted and dipped, searching for insects, with a sound coming not from their throats but from their wings slicing the air. At dusk these sounds were always there. Of course his grandfather knew as much. Yet he must have forgotten, too. Knowing wasn't the same thing as hearing. And the jolt of hearing them again had cut through all his defenses. He recovered a part of himself that he hadn't realized he had lost. That's great, Ted said. They're saying it's going to rain, his grandfather told him hoarsely. Naturally, Ted was glad for him. Partly, it was the pleasure of saying, I told you so, to a stubborn man. But there was also something else. As he watched him drinking in the sounds, being reinstated to a piece of life that he'd missed and that, they both knew, he would soon be leaving, it occurred to Ted with a startled pang how much he envied him. I'd better go, Ted said feeling his tears come, too. His grandfather didn't reply. Ted pressed his lips tightly together to suppress a sob. Oh, to discover something similarly beyond himself that he could call his own. The birds sang on. His grandfather, absorbed in listening, didn't notice. He removed a handkerchief from the front of his bibs and brought it near his mouth. A cloud of gnats swirled nearby, and then it disappeared in the dimness. "'I'd better go,' Ted repeated. "'Bye, Teddy,' his grandfather finally said. "'Thanks.' Dogs moved in the shadows. "'Yeah, I'd better go.' His grandfather nodded. The birds sang on. Ted turned and went to his car. Charles Holdefer's most recent novel is back in the game. New short fiction is forthcoming in Slice, The Los Angeles Review, and Gargoyle. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright bound off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>